Welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the context in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm based in the place now called Oakland, California, on the unceded native lands of the Chochenyo Ohlone people. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is especially geared for white people, white people talking to other white people about racism and white supremacy. We believe that white folks like me have a responsibility to resist white supremacy, to speak up, to show up to challenge and dismantle white supremacy wherever it appears, including and maybe especially in our own Christian churches. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. The material I'm putting out here this week feels especially edgy to me. It's a growing edge that I'm just beginning to explore, so I'd especially love any feedback you'd like to leave for me. I'm going to be talking today about bodies, about embodiment, about our relationship to bodies, our own and others, and how privilege and trauma impacts those relationships. I know that talking about bodies is painful or uncomfortable for a lot of us. That's why it feels so important to me to do it. But please, do what you need to do to take care of yourself if you find yourself feeling triggered. So let's begin with an embodied practice to help us get connected. I invite you to get comfortable wherever you are. Feel your feet on the ground, the earth supporting you, the air around you. Now starting with the soles of your feet, bring your awareness to your body. Just notice how it is feeling today. How are your toes, your heels, your instep, your ankles and lower legs. As you move up your body, focus on sending love and total acceptance to each part, and especially to any place where you find discomfort or pain. How are your knees doing today? Your upper legs and hips, your pelvis, How are things in the middle of your body? All those vital organs that keep things running. Can you send love and acceptance and gratitude to those? To your heart and rib cage, your diaphragm and upper back, your shoulders and arms, wrists and hands, to your neck and face and head. Wherever you found discomfort or pain or even numbness in your body, take a moment now to send love and acceptance there. Now that we're connected to our bodies, let's turn to the scripture for this week. I'll be focusing on the gospel passage, which is Luke chapter 24, verses 36b to 48. Brothers and sisters, don't get 
I can't help but think as I read this passage about Jesus' bodily appearance to the disciples when they are convinced that he's dead, about other people presumed dead who are still here, actually. Other people murdered in the process of colonization who are nevertheless still appearing, still refusing to succumb quietly to the oblivion to which colonial aims would consign them. I think of the Standing Rock Sioux, for example, and the First Nations people in British, British Columbia, who as of today have halted the construction of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain oil pipeline, at least for the moment. I think of the Ohlone people right here in the Bay Area who are leading a movement to protect the West Berkeley Shell Mound, land that has been held sacred for more than 5,000 years. I can't help but think of the ways Jesus is still appearing to us in all his stubborn, disconcerting, and powerful embodiment, urging us onward toward becoming the people of God. For me, the point of today's gospel passage is that Jesus comes to us in a human body. The passage is about his hands, his feet, his body. He says, look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He showed them his body. And specifically, although it's not mentioned here, he showed them his wounds. And when they still could not quite believe it, he showed them his hunger, asking if they have anything to eat and then eating the piece of fish they offer him. It seems very important in this passage to establish that Jesus is not just a spirit or a ghost, but a living embodied person, even now, even after his mortal body has been murdered by the state. It seems important to remember, even after the resurrection, that Jesus is fully human as well as fully divine. It seems important to remember, in this time of state-sponsored terror and torture, violence against human bodies, that Jesus comes to us in a human body. My housemate, Jean Jeffress, who is also one of my favorite theologians, said in her Good Friday sermon, It's fine that we celebrate the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross, but if we don't also recognize that Jesus was a human person who was profiled, arrested, and killed by the state, then we are celebrating a violent state-sponsored execution without looking at the implications of what that means for incarnations of God today. Until we live in a post-crucifixion world, we have to focus on what happened to Jesus' body We have to grieve Jesus, the man. Otherwise, there is no contemporary context for our faith, and our belief is illegitimate and in vain. That's Jean Jeffress. And I remembered that this week because the gospel passage this week says something to me very deep about the nature of incarnation, namely that this was not a one-time deal, that Jesus was not killed once and for all, that he did not ascend to heaven in order to disappear from us forever, but that Jesus is still appearing in bodies, our bodies, the bodies of people we love, the bodies of immigrants and strangers, bodies in which we might never recognize Jesus were he not continually opening the scriptures to us and showing us Jesus in the bodies of Stefan Clark 
and Shalim Tyndall, and the man killed in Portland this week, and in the bodies of Jai and Tiffany, two people I met in downtown Oakland last week, desperately searching for shelter for themselves in the midst of our housing crisis. Reading these Easter stories this year, I am convicted that bodies matter. They matter even in their woundedness, their hunger, and their terrifying vulnerability to harm. Bodies are so easy to hurt, and as we are seeing far too often with the right weapon, they are terrifyingly easy to kill. Many of us have experienced trauma to our bodies, maybe especially those of us assigned female, but also some of those assigned male, as Juno Diaz reminds us this week. And so it is little wonder to me that many of us have learned to dissociate, to leave our bodies, and drift up, up, and away to somewhere safer. That's why it's so shocking to me that God would choose to incarnate in a body, God, who one would think has the ultimate privilege of transcendence, up, up, and away to somewhere safe, instead chooses to come down, down into bodies, down into the brutality of history, down into the midst of trauma at precisely the place where it impacts human bodies. Even in resurrection, God comes to God's people in a body. So it occurs to me that it might be fruitful to use this week's gospel passage to open up a conversation about our relationship to bodies and to embodiment. It seems to me that we live in a culture that despises bodies, and especially bodies in their vulnerability, bodies that hurt and break down and require food and shelter and warmth and health care that no one wants to pay for, Oh, maybe we are willing to tolerate bodies for their ability to labor, to generate profit, whether in the fields of agribusiness, the factories in prisons, the sweatshops in other countries, or even the cubicles and classrooms and offices of the working middle class. We might be willing to invest in the bare minimum to keep those bodies functioning, but not for any reason that has anything to do with love. And bodies that either can't labor or aren't needed for labor, the permanent substratum of unemployed people that are actually necessary for capitalism to function, those bodies we despise. Maybe as a result of this attitude in the culture, many of us are disconnected from our own bodies, and this disconnection seems to increase with privilege, especially the privilege not to have to do manual labor. From this place of discomfort and disconnection, we disavow our own physicality and project bodiliness on other people, women and people of color and poor people and people with disabilities are asked to carry the weight of embodiment, the weight of desire and hunger and pain and shame. I'm reminded of an essay called Of Soul and White Folks in the book Born to Belonging by Mab Segrist. In the part I'm remembering, she talks about the interactions of white and black bodies on the slave plantation, and specifically the frequency with which slave mistresses contracted sick headaches that kept them sequestered away in the house where they didn't have to witness their husband's brutality toward enslaved Africans and African-descended people. There's a kind of hierarchy of embodiment in this pattern, with black slaves as the most embodied, viewed as little more than their bodies, 
followed by white women whose bodies are breaking down. It's hard to miss how this hierarchy of embodiment mirrors the hierarchy of power with the white male slave owners at the top as the least embodied. I find myself speculating this week about possible parallels between the white slave mistress's sick room and the upper room where the disciples hid in fear of being associated with Jesus and targeted for punishment. I find myself wondering, are there ways in which the walls of our white churches function as the walls of the plantation bedroom, protecting those inside from the brutality toward black and brown bodies outside, even as they hide the ways in which most white churchgoers are also suffering as a result of white supremacy? That's the related question, right? Are there ways that white people themselves are colonized and held in bondage by whiteness? And might the evidence of that be locked in our bodies? That's the argument Tada Hozumi has made in his controversial article called Why White People Can't Dance, They're Traumatized. His title is, of course, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and he acknowledges that, of course, some white folks can dance and some people of color don't, None of this can be essentialized, but he does suggest that whiteness itself is, in his words, a type of embodiment that holds a certain set of ideas and attitudes in place, a type of embodiment that is characterized by, for example, rigidity in the iliopsoas muscle, a muscle that connects the pelvis to the spine. Hozumi argues that this rigidity tends to disconnect white folks from their lower bodies, Now, as I said, this is controversial, and it indicates a whole new way of thinking about how oppressor status is passed down and spread and held in place. But I have to say that it rings true in my own body and in the bodies of several friends with whom I've discussed his theory. But regardless of what you make of Hozumi's hypothesis, you can still consider what it might mean for us to heal our relationships with our own bodies. We can still take back our projections of degraded bodiliness from other people and commit to learning to love the body of Jesus in ourselves and others. James Baldwin wrote about racism as a form of projection in the fire next time. The passage ends with these words, white people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow, and very well maybe never, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. I think what Baldwin is saying is that when we can come to love our own bodies, our own embodied selves, we will no longer need to degrade other people. Christianity, of course, has contributed a great deal to the degradation of the body, and the resulting brutality against bodies that have the least social power, black and brown bodies, women's bodies, poor and disabled bodies. I think the gospel passage this week offers us an opportunity to repent, so to speak. We have an opportunity to notice that bodies matter in scripture, that bodies matter to God, and that they should matter to us as well. Amen.
as always, we end with a call to action, and this week I have several options for you. The first is to get involved with the Community Safety for All campaign of Surge Faith. It's a campaign in which we ask our faith communities to examine the ways they rely on policing and then to invest in alternative ways of ensuring the safety of ourselves and our neighbors, all of our neighbors, in ways that don't harm people of color. You can sign up for the campaign by going to our website, showingupforracialjustice.org backslash faith. The second call to action is to learn about and find ways to support the struggle for indigenous sovereignty and the protection of lands sacred to the native peoples of this place. I'll include links to some current campaigns in the transcript. And finally, for the third call to action, I invite you to learn more about somatic approaches to social justice. Take a look at some of the resources offered by Generative Somatics or by Tara Hozumi. Discuss them with your community and then identify one or two next steps for embodying what you want to see in the world rather than what we've inherited. Thanks, as always, for joining me today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be back next week with Alan Steele giving us a resistance word for the text for April 22nd. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Transcripts are available as well on our website which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Finally, a big shout out to our sound editor for this week, Maxwell Pearl. Thanks, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.